Hello, this is Mary. Hi, Mary. It's Blake. Hi, Blake. Um, what, <clears throat> why, why am I calling you on the phone today to record these uh, these intro things? Well, Blake, it's funny you should ask, hmm. but I have COVID. Oh, no. I know. It finally hit me. I thought that I could be the one person to outrun it, but here I am. <clears throat> doing what I'm supposed to be doing, isolating um, and staying away from people and uh, so that they don't also get COVID from me. Well, that's very kind. And I'm, I'm glad we're doing it this way because at the end <laughs> of the day, it's okay that we're recording this over the phone. It is. I think it's this is uh, the world we live in where sometimes you can't be in the studio, so you got to record over the phone because someone has the coronavirus. <laughs> Very well put. Uh, okay, let's do it. I'm just gonna, we're just going to dive in here. I'm going to play the intro. And um, you ready to rock? Yeah. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Duluth Story Project. True stories from our community, plus the very special journey of a raccoon named Bob, all told by artists. This is David and Diane's story. I'm good today, and yet I'm always a little bit mad. I watched the testimony for the George Floyd hearings yesterday, and I watched those police officers testify. And then today I hear people talking about them being actors and just kind of mocking these people who've done this stuff. And I'm just, I'm mad. I'm mad at everyone who can get a vaccination but won't get one. I'm mad at people who don't understand what happened on January 6th. I can't watch it, truly. I'm telling you, I, I watch a lot of the George Floyd coverage, which is weird because I normally wouldn't. But I had all this time, and I watched a lot of it, and and I'm angry about the whole vaccine stuff. I mean, I, I'm really angry. I've just been overwhelmed with the stuff, the, the capital, this, that. But there was a stretch of time where my wife and I would usually watch the news together, and I would go do something else because emotionally, I just had it. I just, I, I just had had it. I just felt like things kept happening and happening and happening. I was living in terror during the election because I thought. What if this keeps going the way everything else is going? Now, after George Floyd, if I'm walking and I see the police having some kind of interaction with a person of color, I distance myself, but I stop and I wait and I have my phone close. I know where it is because, I mean, I'm a middle-class white woman. I don't intrude, you know, but I have several times now just been on the other side of the street. There's so many things I could feel so helpless about, but that is something that I can do. So I do it, and I walk a lot. I, so, I mean, I'm, I'm there. I've had Dean pull the car over a couple of times and just said, let's just wait here. The George Floyd thing was just so heinous. And think about the fact that some brave teenage girl held that phone. Mm -hmm. Without the video, it would just be the way it's always been. I just feel like if we witness it, then that's what we should do. I also feel like, you know, it always seemed that these things were happening kind of elsewhere. And there's something about this happening in Minnesota. We can't pretend anymore that it's nice here. I think it's time we come to terms. I mean, in this town, Native American people have a terrible time with the police. It's just this long history. Now the whole world can kind of see how shitty it can be. 
or painful. We just assumed we're all really nice here. Well, or not. I was really nervous about the George Floyd trial because I've seen what in the system works and I've seen what the system does. So I went into this thing. I was I was using my lawyer brain, listening to the testimony. And of course it gets done. I'm looking at the law and I said, well, they got this. Yeah, but, but I thought, well, so what? You know, O.J. Simpson got off, even though the evidence was there because people around the world were watching this. So I thought, thank God the system worked this time. It worked this time. The way it's supposed to work, because all you need is one saying no. I don't think, I'm not going to convict them, you know? It's called jury nullification. You just get one person to be the holdout in a criminal case. That's all you need. So I was thinking, oh, God, I hope that everyone does their civic duty, listens to the evidence, listens to the jury instructions. And they did. And they came back, frankly, quite quickly. So I thought, you know what? The system worked. Well, and there have been so many times where it was just so clear that someone simply murdered a person of color and got off, or that some white people got off when I mean, even on tape, even with stuff. I mean, it's like, but this, this was so clear. So when it came back fast, I thought, okay, we're all right. But just today, uh, the News Tribune yesterday called Pete Stauber and asked him to comment on the testimony, a fellow police officer. No comment. But if he thinks his enemies are the people hurting police, then he's all up in that business. When the verdict came back, I felt joy. (laughs) I mean, it's weird to say, but I did. All the evidence was there. The guy was convicted, like he should have been. Joy and relief. Justice, justice would have been if the guy was still alive. My overall feeling was relief, but not justice, because justice to me would have been the other police officers present on the scene had grabbed him and pulled him off George Floyd. Mm-hmm. That would have been justice if they had intervened. I feel like the system worked, and we'll see. One of the most interesting things about this, which is kind of unprecedented, is police officers testifying against their own. Although, I mean, part of me was listening to them, and I'm like, yay, and, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm mad, right? Is this posturing? You know, you are the guys who let this person who you knew was a loose cannon train other people and be there. And he'd had other offenses. I mean, this wasn't the first time he did stuff like this. So, okay, you guys can talk about justice and fairness and stuff, but at least, and I have to say, I wasn't afraid that there were going to be riots because, frankly, there should have been. But I was so relieved that that man is going to jail. David, I wanted to ask you, what was the first year that you voted for president in the presidential election? Uh, Well, let's see. I turned 18 in 1965. Well, could you vote at 18 in 1965, or or did you have to be 21? You know, it happened so long ago, I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Because I remember the whole controversy about, you know, I, I can't remember if it was during Vietnam. You could be drafted, but you couldn't vote. And that was a big deal in that. Yeah, so I don't know, maybe when I was when I was uh, twenty one. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that was during the the Vietnam years. Right. First time I voted in a presidential election was for George McGovern in nineteen seventy two. Of course, he was just massacred, but I liked him, and I was disappointed. You know, I've always been disappointed that whoever I want to be the candidate isn't the candidate. I remember I voted absentee and dragged my father along, and he'd had several beers, and we went to my friend's mom's house, and we voted in a kitchen. And, you know, that was kind of it. 
My dad, of course, would have died before he voted for a Republican. <laughs> Voting meant a lot to me. My parents always voted. I mean, that was a big thing. They weren't like campaigning, and we were definitely in a sea of Republicans, but we definitely were not. Because of my dad, I always thought there was supposed to be a goddamn before the word Republican. Like it was all one word, <laughs> goddamn Republican. So that's what it was like for me growing up. It was, it was really cool, I think. I mean, McGovern came to campus when I was a freshman in college, and just being able to vote, you know, like in the school board election and stuff like that, mm -hmm. it's just so great. I've never missed a vote. I think I missed a primary one time because I just spaced it out, but I've never missed voting, ever. I still get a real thrill when I get to go in and vote. For me, it was just more of a civic duty or a responsibility. And it was interesting because growing up in the 50s and 60s in West Duluth, of course, my parents would always say, well, you just vote for the Democrat. And it's interesting because as I got older, I mean... I really view myself as an independent, which my wife will laugh inside at. <laughs> I'm laughing inside. <laughs> but I do. I, I have voted for a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, and I've done a write-in. When we talk about elections, I, I would tell you what, what discouraged me then and really discourages me now. When I was younger, Democrats and Republicans could disagree on how we get there. But generally speaking, the ultimate goal was the same. And that has really changed. I try to talk to my Republican friends about this, and my biggest concern is, where are you getting your facts? We would say something like, you know, Kellyanne Conway is wrong, and then met with, oh, there are alternative facts. But no, there aren't. We are living in a time of alternative facts, and I still have some friends who are Republicans, and, and if I ever chat with them, I mean, I mean, I get irate because I will say here, go, 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 go to factcheck.org. Check this, check, check this, check this. But their belief, and they believe it, is that the fact is something else. You know, you, you, you talk to anyone who believes that this past election was stolen, which is ludicrous, but there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that still believe it. So I, I think the country's in big trouble. Oh, I think the country is in the worst place it's been in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been through some pretty rough times. I mean, we didn't live through the Civil War, but... We lived through civil rights stuff, and we certainly lived through Vietnam stuff, you know? I mean, I just feel like the Tea Party and Reaganomics and then these certain personalities and then media and then social media, just the spread of things that are not true. I'm not going to say lies, but yes, it's constant, daily. It goes on and on and on, and I see this stuff. It's Soviet in its thinking. It's so crazy. So it's hard. But you know, like I was saying on the way here, when George Floyd was killed, my first instinct was I wanted to come downtown and do a Clayton Jackson McGee thing. And then I was like, Ugh. but I don't feel safe doing it now. But come election time, I masked up, put on a lot of clothes, grabbed the sign and stood on the corner a lot. And I cannot believe some of the stuff I almost missed doing that. Somebody driving up onto the sidewalk and almost running into somebody. Constant foul language, swearing at kids. I mean, it was so ugly. And again, I felt like I can stand here and I can remind myself to be safe. I have to be here because those people can't. But I feel like I have a sort of post-traumatic stress reaction to great big loud trucks now. <laughs> but it was funny. We'd, we'd be holding signs and people would like, you know, flip us off and stuff and we would blow them kisses. <laughs> The day after the election of Donald J. Trump, 
I had to go teach. And I was teaching interpersonal communication, and we were on a unit about empathy. So in this particular class, there were two Native American kids. There were two kids whose parents had immigrated from Mexico and another from Central America, a foreign exchange student from Africa, you know, a whole bunch of kids. And they were sitting in a classroom, and they're absolutely terrified. They were terrified about what the election was going to mean for them and their families. And then there's a group of, you know, nice young white boys from the suburbs just like whooping it up. And I said, I don't want to harsh your party here, but we're talking about empathy. And I want you to take a minute to look around this room and look at the reactions of people who stand to lose something. And they all, you know, they actually did it, which amazed me. And I thought, well, okay, that's because I had power over them. I do feel badly that I don't attempt to talk more to Trump supporters, but I'm, I think I'm too angry and I feel like, what's the point? I'm also tired of talking and rehashing over and over again. I don't spend much time with Trump supporters, but my wife has some family members and it became clear to us, the facts don't matter. In other words, we're not going to change their mind. So what we've done with that part of my wife's family is we, A, don't spend much time with them, and B, when we do, we don't talk about it. We've made an agreement to not talk about it because it never ends well now. Well, I'm on a Facebook group called Sweep, and it's a bunch of women who are Biden supporters. I cannot tell you how many of them have stories that would break your heart. There are divorces because of Trump's election. You know what? I think this pandemic is going to bring up divorces. But I think when you're married to somebody who believes something so differently, and it's not just about politics, it's it's tough. I remember my mother asked me years ago, do you have a single friend who's a Republican? And I said, hmm, not that I know of. And that was before it even got bad. I grew up in a family with, like, Goldwater Republicans. And right now, Barry Goldwater would be considered an extreme leftist, (laughs) right? I mean, it's shifted so far. I feel like I'm standing in the same spot. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, that's a radical crazed person who should be in prison. And then here's the question. I mean, really for me, because I view myself as listening to the facts and, you know, judging things and making a decision. We had 70 plus million people that voted for Donald Trump. And I can understand why some people don't want Joe Biden and and didn't want Hillary Clinton. But to vote for this guy? It's stunning that there are that many people. On the other hand, The fact that 70 million people voted for him tells me that there is something in the society that we are not appropriately addressing. I really do think we've left a lot of people behind. Some of them, I don't care, because they just don't want people of color or women to rise. But I do think there's a lot of people who are really feeling disenfranchised, kind of legitimately. I think promises were made. The interesting thing to me is that that man made a whole bunch of promises to people and then just shit all over them, and they still voted for him anyway. (laughs) But I do think there's something in this society where there are a lot of, like, poor white people voting for him. What I don't get is when a suburban housewife, soccer mom, votes for him. But that's where he lost the election. I remember one day I was out for a walk during the pandemic, filled with the spirit and listening to somebody do an analysis that said, he's not going to win the election. He's losing the women's vote. And here's why he's losing the women's vote. So that was a glimmer of hope. I was afraid he was going to be elected again because the shock of the first time, that that was like, like, wait, that happened? 
I want to make I want to make one other comment and then I'll shut up about this. But I've been tooting this horn for years. The presidency of the United States is the only office I know of where the person who gets the most votes may not win. I've heard all the pros and the cons, what the electoral college does, blah blah blah. If you're running for class officer in seventh grade and you get more votes than the other person, you win, which is how it should be for president. Yeah. To me, that was just gobsmacking that Hillary could get so many more votes. And this election, I watched it really on just pins and needles. But then for the inauguration, we were at the cabin, and I was just crying, and we had a bottle of champagne. That bottle was in the refrigerator for about five years, just waiting. But I have to admit that when Biden announced that he was going to run, my heart sank. I was hoping for the ascendancy of the more liberal way, and I was all about Elizabeth. How long do we have to wait until we have a female president? I always predicted that she would be the one nominated first. I don't know why. Oh, well, that reminds me of a quick story about my wife's relative, who is quite conservative and very evangelical. Well, we're there this summer for a few days, and our daughter and her family are coming. That includes our five-year-old granddaughter. So my wife's brother-in-law has this huge American flag that is hanging from the rafters. And he says to our five-year-old granddaughter, Gracie, you know what this flag represents? She says, yeah, Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there is a God after all. (laughs) Speaking of there being a God after all, Let's see what the raccoon is up to. (laughs) We last left Bob the raccoon in an alleyway. He's still there. Chapter 6, The Bread Connoisseur. Bob, like most raccoons, was not a picky eater. As long as it smelled like food, not rotten food, he would eat it. If it seemed dirty, he would wash it or wipe it the best he could, but otherwise there was very little hesitancy between discovery and consumption. The fact that he now was strolling down an alley lined with garbage cans was almost surreal. Raccoons don't benefit nor suffer from status, but at this moment Bob's life could have been narrated by Robin Leach. He casually approached a garbage bin and sized it up. It was made of durable plastic and had a hinged lid. These types of bins were the most difficult to get into, but Bob knew the best method, one best described as tippy-toppy. The tippy-toppy method was executed thusly. Step 1. Jump or climb up and use your front paws to grip the back of the lid where it hinges. Step 2. As you hang there, clinging to the top, pull your hind legs up, bending at the knees with the bottoms of your back feet pressed against the back of the bin. Step 3. Push with all your might with your back legs so that your bottom flings away from the bin and hopefully the weight of your thick belly and rump tips the bin over. Step 4. Quickly move out of the way before the bin lands on you. Step. Five, open up the lid and feast. This garbage receptacle was too tall for Bob as he was not a skilled jumper. But close by was a pile of sticks. Bob dragged a larger stick and leaned it against the bin and climbed up. The branch wiggled a little and then slid out from under him, but he was able to make a desperate jump-like stretch and grabbed the hinge. He now dangled. His hind legs bicycled as he tried to get into position and he finally got his feet in place against the back of the bin. 
so he took a moment to breathe, heavily. Finally, he kicked his legs and flung his bottom away from the bin. It tilted just a bit before his body swung back and slammed into it. One of Bob's front paws slipped, and he hung there by one paw for a moment, and then recovered. He again positioned himself for a tippy-toppy and thrust his hind legs even harder. This time the bin tilted even further. Bob kept swinging his hips and legs to convince the bin to topple, and it worked. It slowly fell over, and as it did, Bob dropped and rolled away enough not to get smooshed. Bob rolled over and found that the lid was wide open and a bag of trash was peeking out. Bob ripped into the bag, which gave up its contents quite easily. Unfortunately, this was a bathroom trash bag and there wasn't a single food scrap inside. This was disappointing. Bob crawled into the bin and immediately found a bag of hamburger buns. They weren't even inside a trash bag. Bob worked a bun out of the bag. He inspected it for mold or any other blemishes, but other than being a little squished, it was perfect. Bob chomped into the bun. He loved bread. Everyone loves bread. And this series of thoughts about bread led Bob to a memory. For there was one raccoon who had come to love bread more than anyone else. And maybe they loved it more than anyone should. This particular raccoon was named Pudge. He had been lovingly given this name by two oft-stoned college roommates for whom Pudge had become a source of much entertainment. They witnessed Pudge visit their neighbor's garbage daily in search of his bread fix. Pudge originally had been knocking over the garbage can to get in, and in the beginning he hadn't been picky at all about what he found inside. But he quickly found a real fondness for the homemade bread that always seemed to be in the garbage. Not long after that, the bread started showing up next to the can. Sometimes there were whole loaves there, and it didn't take any time at all before Pudge acquired a very discerning taste. Of course, bread left out on the ground attracted plenty of animals. And one morning, Pudge showed up to find some feral cats picking at the bread, and he roared into action, defending his bread with an instinctual zeal that had never surfaced in him before. The cats scattered, and his admirers cheered between their coughs. Pudge had claimed his throne as the king of the bread, but it seemed that there was always more bread than there had been the day before. New flavors and types of bread and often overcooked bread. Pudge had more than he needed, and like any benevolent king, he shared his leftovers. Area critters would wait in his periphery until he tossed the scraps unworthy of his superior tongue. Pudge ruled from his glutinous throne until one day, the bread stopped showing up. He knocked down the garbage can a few times before a bungee cord was fixed to it to prevent his access. But Pudge's reign ended as quickly as it had begun. The stoners occasionally <laughs> lamented when they remembered poor Pudge, but even if they'd seen him, they wouldn't have recognized him. His diet had changed, and Pudge wasn't so pudgy anymore. And to this day, Pudge refuses to eat bread that isn't up to his sophisticated standards. As Bob worked his way through the entire pack of buns, he thought of Pudge. He couldn't understand how a raccoon could pass up perfectly good food, but he didn't understand a lot of things. And that never stopped him. He then sniffed the bags of trash that were in the bin. They smelled promisingly pungent. But Bob's curiosity was stronger than the smell. There were so many bins in this alley, and he couldn't help but wonder what was in each one. He'd already had such luck in this bin, and he could just feel that by the end of the night, he'd be fuller than he'd ever been, which is the true wish of every single raccoon. So, Bob sputtered out of the bin he was in and made his way down the crumbling alley surface. 
He quickly moved past the first can he came upon. Branches and leaves were poking out of the top, and he wasn't hungry enough to waste time investigating. But as he walked away, he looked back at the yard waste can as it reminded him of where he was born, and of his brother. And while looking back, he bumped right into another garbage bin. So he sniffed it, right at the bottom, and there was something really good inside. It smelled like old leftovers, not even spoiled yet. Jackpot! He stepped back a little bit to assess the best way to tippy-toppy, and that's when he saw it. With brilliant colors and an elegant gait, it strolled across the top of the can. Bob had no idea what it was. It was bright yellow and blue. A toy of some kind, maybe? Bob stood on his hind legs to get a better view and to get his nose closer. Then it stopped, snapped its head around, and met Bob's eyes. Bob fell back and scrambled to his feet. It was a bird. Then it screeched at Bob. This bird did not belong here. David and Diane's story continued. So I got to do that show. Uh huh. And as soon as we closed, like right on that Sunday afternoon, also thank God I got to do that show before shutdown. Uh-huh. I would have really been off the rails. My friend Kelly and I flew to Seattle like right away. So that was February. And we'd get the paper every day at the hotel door. There were like little bits of information, like just tiny little articles. But then we got back and realized we were just in a place where it was really happening. We feel like we kind of dodged that one because not long after all that little talk had come home. And then, you know, we stayed put for like a year and a half. I don't think there was a specific moment where it hit me. Of course, I, like many people, thought, oh, gee, that's going to be three months. And then I was supposed to have some elective hernia surgery, and they canceled it because it's elective surgery and because they were going to need the hospital for COVID, right? So I thought, oh, this is a bigger thing. And then it got to be where we're not seeing our grandkids in the Twin Cities or that family. And if they did come up, we were in the garage with masks on, and then we were able to see the family in Duluth. But that took a while when everyone felt comfortable because they were bubbled and we were bubbled. Then Janie did something interesting because each day became the same. She started keeping the daily journal of what we did, where we walked, where we hiked, what we did. She did it through the whole pandemic. So many people said to me, you should do that. But I felt like I have nothing in particular to say. I was sort of writing down the things I was watching mostly so I would remember not to watch them again. <laughs> but Dean and I drove to Bayfield every now and then and and we'd just get in the car and we drove to Bayfield on the weekend. Things started to shut down. We went to Coco's and had some food and then it was, everything was closed. This store was closed. This store was closed. When we got back to Duluth, it was just a continuation of that. We did lots of outside stuff in those early months. Lots of walking and hiking. We wanted to make a dent in the Superior Hiking Trail. We took our time and would walk past these old abandoned factories from forever ago. It was really cool. I feel like I know this town a lot better than I did before. How lucky are we to have been locked down here? I think it was really hard also for people who didn't have a partner, but also hard for those with partners. There was just so much time. Yes, absolutely. Dean doesn't watch a lot of TV, so we did a lot of extraordinarily hard jigsaw puzzles. Then we would pass them along to the Johnsons, who do Saturday night jigsaw puzzles. Think about their family. They were just about to put that big house on the market, because who needs it when all five kids are gone? Four of the five kids came back home and moved in. 
They said something like, I know all kinds of terrible things happen to other people, but for our family, it gave us the second shot to be with these people who are our children, but grown-ups now. It wasn't all bad for all of us. Dean got up and went into the office every day. His life in so many ways was the same, very busy. Except he couldn't get coffee, and he had lunch delivered more, and he couldn't see his boyfriends, which was really hard. If I didn't have Katie and Kelly, who I saw as often as we could figure out, I really don't know what I would have done. Katie and I agreed we were never going to say no to the other one. Just try to say yes. It would be negative 15 out, and she'd be like, let's try to go for a walk. I'd go, uh, yes. <laughs> Things like Zoom cocktail hours didn't work for me. It didn't feel like connection. I admire the people who use this time to do stuff. I would say to people, I didn't do a thing. But that's not true. I built two great big gardens. We painted and redid the bathroom. I purged our library of books and made it into a room that you would want to sit in. <laughs> I walked a million miles, and when I could start reading, I got through a ton of books. Janie and I talked about this. My brain was messed up when this thing first happened. I didn't know what to do with myself. I couldn't focus or concentrate. Janie was saying she had that same deal because I know she's such a reader. I couldn't even watch a movie. Two hours and 15 minutes? Mm, I don't know if I can sit through that right now. I couldn't sit and stream six hours of a show. It was too much at that time. That's why I'm so grateful we could go outside. I've got friends in Boston, New York City, LA, Minneapolis. Just going for a walk down the street there seemed like not a good idea. At any given time in Duluth, there was air and space to be able to breathe. I had a renewed sense of gratitude for Duluth. When the vaccine came, I assumed that it would be at least March or April before I could get a vaccination because I'm healthy. I was way more concerned that Dean's mom and dad got vaccinated and that his grandma, above all the people, would get vaccinated. I mean, she's 104 years old. She still goes to the casino. It was a little freaky how people ended up getting vaccinated. My doctor just randomly called me in early February. I think I got vaccinated on February 3rd. There were some cancellations, and they asked me to come in that afternoon. As soon as they heard there was a cancellation, they got Dean's grandma an appointment. We see the same doctor, and so he thought of me when he booked hers, and so I was in. I was so thrilled to get my shot. But what we had to do to get Dean one was just insane. We drove to the Hockey Hall of Fame for his. <laughs> it started to feel like information was breaking down when people couldn't figure out how to get a vaccine. Has it... Has it been okay with Janie's medical stuff recently? Well, that was one of the only positive things that came out of the pandemic. She may have an appointment in the Twin Cities, but we can now do it virtually. We don't have to make the drive, or we might still go down, but only once in a while. When we do, it's fully masked, we're the only people there, and then it'll be three months until the next follow-up appointment. Physicians say, well, we learned something, which is we don't need people to be coming in, waiting, traveling long distances. Some of this we could do virtually. Some stuff, you got to be in person. Like I go to the skin doctor every six months now. But other things, it's not always necessary. Telemedicine is going to be the big way forward. I have a lot of respect for those folks in medicine right now. The whole vaccine thing is heartbreaking for people who work in medicine. I know two people who work in healthcare who said they can't do it anymore. One of Dean's good friends hasn't been vaccinated. He has a general mistrust, but he, he does say he's going to get it. I think that's because the guys are pressuring him, mainly because they don't want him to get sick. 
I live in mortal terror of getting someone else sick. And I have an underlying fury at this point. At first, I could understand if people weren't actively seeking the vaccine out. It was very confusing for a lot of people. And there's this assumption that everybody has access to internet and computers and cell phones, but some people don't. Trying to get in under those circumstances is crazy. But now you can go to the drugstore and get a shot. Now that there's no reason not to, I'm, I'm furious. 600,000 people plus have died in this country. Right now, the people who are dying are anti-vaxxers who ask for the shot as they're dying. And it's too late. Again, how fortunate are we in this privileged country to have access to vaccines? They were readily available. One of the more moving parts of this whole experience is realizing how much I miss certain people. I remember seeing you and Janie on the lake walk after a break from seeing you guys, not being able to be near you or hug you or anything. I'm I'm tearing up about it now. It was so good to see you, but also crushing. Mother's Day was the first time Dean hugged his mom. I said to him, we got to go into their house and just make them a part of our pod and see what happens because we can't go the whole winter without seeing your mom and dad. We can't do it. So I dragged him into their house. He was hesitant. On Mother's Day, he stood up and he gave his mom a hug and it was just like, oh man, the reunions feel big these days. Yet I'm not fully ready to see everyone. Small doses are best for me right now. If I try to do too much at once, it's just overwhelming, and then I have harder days. There were definitely days where I fell into my pit of despair. I would tell Dean, I'm not in a good spot. He'd ask if he could do anything, and I would just laugh and say, no, I'm, I'm just telling you. I just need to say it out loud that today is not a good day. And it would pass. We both realized how unbelievably fortunate we really are. His work went on. That company is honestly kind of booming, probably because of COVID. We live where we do. We have a community. He's got a job, and we don't hate each other. (laughs) That's something. (laughs) That's something. You got to find the things to hold on to. Hope springs eternal. (laughs) Hope is one of my words, too. Hope. Community. Perseverance. Mm -hmm. I think... You just have to dig in. (laughs) Duluth Story Project is a program of Zeitgeist. All stories are verbatim, faithfully told by artists, and the names have been changed. David and Diane were read by John Pukshavinsky and Julie Acey. The Raccoons is written by Robert Lee and performed by Blake Thomas. Duluth Story Project is created by Mary Fox, Dennis Johnson, Alexandra Duncan, and Robert Lee, with help from Mackenzie McCullum, Amy Demmer, Sarah Luke, Gabby Mirabito, and Ari Kilgore. Sound design, music, and audio production by Blake Thomas. This activity is made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. And from Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation, funded in part by the Anonymous Friend Fund, the Dr. and Mrs. Bernard Becker Charitable Fund, and the Living Legacy Fund, with additional support from Cartier Insurance. Thank you for listening. To make a donation and for more information, head to DuluthStoryProject.com.
at any time here. Say what? <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, now you say the thing. Okay. <clears throat>